Okay, can we turn to Romans chapter 9 again tonight, please? Tonight we have, I opted to print out last night's notes because it bears repetition, really. Those principles that I taught last night need to be repeated. But instead of doing that tonight, so we can move forward into Romans 9.14, I've decided to print out basically the message from last night with some beefed up with a few more scripture references. So I think if you give it 15 minutes, it'll be to your great profit benefit. Romans chapter 9, verse 17. No, 14. Let's start with 14. And take a couple of moments of quiet professional preparation. Father, we ask tonight again that you'll open the eyes of our heart to behold wonderful things in your word, the sum total of those wonderful things being Jesus Christ and him crucified. And may our attention be riveted upon him as we learn with humility and gratitude all that you've done for us in your passionate philanthropy. We thank you for this privilege again tonight and for the confidence that we can have that the Holy Spirit is here to pour out the love of God in our hearts and to lead us into all the truth that is embodied in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that privilege in his name. Amen. Tonight, a little bit about the God's sovereign saving will and the horizon of rectification, the horizon of God's act of justification. We're going to go into a, a few big sections of Romans tonight. It's been a long time coming, but I want you to see how big pieces of Romans fit together in this overall plan. And it's coming together now as we move into Operation Delta, in which we're exploring the passionate philanthropy of God in our so great salvation, his great love and Universal mercy, great love, Romans 5 through 8. Universal mercy, Romans 9 through 11. And we'll start with Romans 9, 14. Again, we went from 9, 1 to 13 last night, miraculously. Paul then says, what then shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? Then he uses one of his Precious meganoitos, of course not. Perish the thought. Emphatic negative. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, this is from Exodus thirty-three nineteen. Paul's really stacking up scripture references here. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice he doesn't say, I'll have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on, and I'll judge whoever I want to. It's either it's mercy and compassion. But here's my strategy now lately. Let's do a far striker. We're shooting an arrow. Here's the bow, and we're shooting the arrow, and here it goes all the way 
to Romans 11:32 where it strikes the target. Right here Romans 11:32. See how this goes. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But this phenomenal verse, this target verse, one of the climactic verses in Romans, the other being Romans 8:31 and still another in Romans 16:25 to 27. Bear that in mind. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Romans 11.32, for God has consigned all of humanity to disobedience in order to have mercy on all. You see, Paul is reading, writing, he's writing this whole thing. He's presenting an argument with this light on over his shoulder. He knows God intends and does show mercy to all. He quotes God as saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion upon whom I'll have compassion. But at the end of this argument, he says, I will have mercy on everybody. So my question is, is God unjust to have mercy upon all? He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he will have mercy on all. Is there injustice in that? Is God unjust? I'll ask you this. Is God unjust to execute his saving will toward mankind without mankind's permission? Is it all right if God saves you from an intolerably, indescribable, horrific death without asking your permission? Is God unjust to do that? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have mercy on all. I will to have mercy on all. So I say, is God unjust to have mercy on all? The answer, meganoita. Of course not. There is no injustice with God. So we get the sense here, and I have getting, been getting this sense ever since our introduction to Romans, which was 109 hours worth of a message called Better Call Paul. That's intro to Romans. I get the sense that Paul is making a case for the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal redemptive and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ precisely so that he can show all the saints in Rome that they have been shown the great love and abundant mercy of God as all humanity and all creation has and will. And because of this, on what basis can they hold on to boasting rooted in group bias, boasting rooted in human works, or even boasting rooted in human will? He's not making a case that those who have believed can boast over those who do works either. He's not making a case that those who have chosen to believe for their justification have something over those who have chosen to work for their justification or vice versa. He's making no case for human choice or decision at all. 
but for the divine decision to have mercy on all through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, by whose obedience, which was to the extent of death by crucifixion, the world's sin was expiated, also known as abolished, put away, extinguished. When Jesus Christ endured the wages of sin, he endured it to the extent that it was extinguished, that death was extinguished, and that was proven by his resurrection from the dead. And so, I'll go so far as to be a little bolder and to say that Paul is not making a case for human choice at all but for the divine decision to have mercy on all, which perfectly fits inside his justice and his righteousness, the principle of which is his love. And I'm calling his love his passionate philanthropy for all mankind. Philanthropy meaning love for all mankind. Now, in the light of the cross... In the light of Jesus Christ and him crucified, I'll be bold enough to say this. God would be unjust not to have mercy on all. God would be unjust not to have mercy upon all in the light of Jesus Christ and him crucified, whose death was incomprehensibly the extinguishing of sin for all the world. Romans 9.16. So then it, Paul's subject, election. So then it, that's election, God's election, does not depend on a human who wills, nor on a human who runs. In other words, it's not your will getting in and it's not your running, staying in. But on God who shows mercy. This is entirely congruent with the truth expressed in James 1.18, namely that God by his own choice, look it up yourself sometime, James 1.18, God by his own choice brought us into being by his faithful word the message of grace, the message of truth, so that we would be the first fruits of his new creation. The new creation is a creation-wide restoration of all things. And we're the first fruits of that new creation because God brought us into being as a new creation, as an act of uncontingent grace and love. And John 1.13, how about that? The second half says, who were born, not on account of human lineage, nor by physical impulse or human volition, but of God. It's one thing to remove human works out of the equation for justification or for salvation or for election. It's one thing to remove human works out of the equation. 
That is part of the offense of the cross. But it's quite another thing to remove human will out of the equation. And that's the offense today, even among those who will accept that salvation is not of works. So here's where the offense lies today. But this is also the offense of the cross, this offense, the offense of the cross that people are offended that their human will is not involved in God's saving power and God's saving decision. It's still the offense of the cross because the cross not only offends those who want to credit their justification to works, but it also offends those who want to credit their justification to their decision to believe when in fact justification is the act of God whose mercy triumphs over judgment. Our election, choice by God, and our justification slash salvation is rooted in God's choice for man. God is for us. A choice that's expressed in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So God is just all the way through. And God is righteous to justify his son in Romans 3.26. And in justifying his son, God is just as just in justifying all of humanity and rectifying all of creation in all of its times, because Jesus embodies all of creation in his incarnate self. Now that would probably be something I'd have to write if I was ever to write a theology book. And not only is Jesus Christ all of created reality summed up and embodied, he is also... More importantly, Colossians 2.9, all of the fullness of deity or divinity is in him bodily, somatikos. That's as, as, as explicit as you can get that all of divinity is embodied in him. So when we say reality is Jesus, we mean all created reality is embodied in him, summed up in him. And all uncreated reality, which is divinity, is summed up in him. And there's good news after Colossians 2.9. It's found in 2.10. And you are complete in him. Who is head of principalities and powers, as well as head of the body of Christ, which means his redemption covers angels too. Angels were with him when he ascended his throne of glory. People are looking for the Son of Man to come in his glory. I am too, backwards. Because the Son of Man came in his glory with all the angels of God when he ascended the throne called the cross. It is the throne of his glory because Paul said we don't glory in anything but the cross by which we have been crucified to this evil age and this age to us, this cosmos to us. And so, 
when he approached the throne, all the angels of God were with him. But they were not with him to help him or to save him from the fate of crucifixion and death, but to watch him accomplish eternal redemption for all of creation. That's what it means when we read 1 Timothy 3.16, when the pastoral epistles come in with their interpretive power to say God in the flesh was seen by angels. That means he wasn't helped by angels, but he was viewed by angels as he helped all of creation in his redemptive act. Don't you think he said, I could call 12 legions of angels, call my father, have my father activate them for me in Matthew twenty six fifty three? They're right there. But he didn't. If angels didn't help him in salvation, what makes you think you can? Romans 9, see how fast we're moving? Told you the pedal be to the metal with some reservations. My driver instructor doesn't let me go too fast. My driver instructor is called Parakletos, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the energizer. 9.17, for the scripture tells Pharaoh. What is the scripture a person or something? The scripture tells Pharaoh. Quote, I brought you into being. (laughs) That's a pretty humbling thing to tell a king who thinks he's God. I brought you into being, Yahweh speaking through Moses. I brought you into being for this reason. The big thing about Pharaoh is he wants to make a name for himself in the whole world. God says to him, I brought you into being, raised you up also. I brought you into being, put you in this position for this reason. To showcase my power by using you so that my name will be proclaimed all over the world. No wonder Pharaoh got a little hot under the collar and said, I'm not letting those people go. Who is this God? For the scripture tells Pharaoh. Now, what does that mean? The net notes are helpful here. Every once in a while, I shoot over there and see if they help. In fact, I look at A.T. Robertson on every verse. What's he got to say that'll help? Sometimes he's got a lot to say that'll help. Sometimes I say, I don't agree with you. A.T. But the net note says this about Romans 9.17, that Paul is using a typical rabbinic formula, the kind of things that rabbis would use in making an argument or presenting a rhetorical case. Rhetoric simply means it comes from the phrase, I persuade. Rhetoric is a use of persuading people. Paul uses a typical rabbinical, I think, rhetorical formula here in which the Old Testament scriptures are figuratively portrayed as speaking to Pharaoh. The net note goes on to say what he means is that the scripture he cites refers or can be applied to Pharaoh. Notice what it says again. The scripture tells Pharaoh, which is really Yahweh recorded in the scripture speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. I brought you into being. That reminds me of Daniel speaking to the king. He says, O king, the God I know holds your next breath in his hand. If you inhale or exhale one more time, 
It's by courtesy of my God. Now, that's pretty bold. He's talking about speaking truth to power. There it is. And then I love it when the king says, well, let me give you this gold medallion and promote you. And Daniel says, keep your gold medallion. Keep it. He could have said something even more explicit, like stuff it in a drawer somewhere or something like that. But Romans 9, 18. So then, so then, speaking as God said to Moses, Exodus 33.9, cited in Romans 9.15. So then, he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and he hardens whom he will. Uh Uh-oh, now we've got a ringer thrown into the mix here. There's a monkey wrench in the works here. What do you mean by that? He hardens whom he will. Well, first of all, we must say that the power that God reveals, he raised up Pharaoh to show his power, God's power. Now, what does that mean? He means he raised up Pharaoh because he wants to take Pharaoh, whom he hardens against God's will, to show that God will demonstrate all kinds of power and even bring creation under his power and sway to deliver his people. The power he's talking about is the power of salvation. I have brought you into being to show forth my power. And that goes all the way back to Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Saving power. You say, but what about all those plagues? Yes, those were the means by which God delivered his people. Saving power. So we must say, first of all, that the power that God reveals is related to the power of salvation, which is inherent in the gospel. In fact, we might almost suggest, and I'm going to flesh this out a little bit, that when the gospel is proclaimed, that very proclamation is the power of salvation. It actually creates salvation in the hearers. The power that God puts on dramatic display using Pharaoh, whom he hardens. You say, why did you harden Pharaoh? Well, first of all, Pharaoh hardened his own. People try to explain that away. First, he hardened his own heart. Then God, no, God hardened Pharaoh. Because if he had a nice guy saying, sure, I'll let your people go. Go ahead, take them. So they just march out. Big deal. The zombie army marches out. No, instead, God hardens whom he will. So, beyond that power, even, his name will also be proclaimed in all the world. And when his name is proclaimed, saving grace is extended. So, The power that God puts on dramatic display using Pharaoh, whom he hardens. And people assume that that means he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could send Pharaoh to hell. It has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with that. We're not talking about a double predestination here, which makes God a monstrosity. We're not talking about that. 
Now listen carefully. The power that God puts on dramatic display using Pharaoh, whom he hardens, is the power by which he saved all of Israel at that time. All Israel was right there in the ghetto of Goshen in Egypt. All of Israel. What did God do? He saved all of Israel. All Israel was saved. All Israel at that time was saved. Paul knows all Israel at all times is going to be saved. That's the whole point he's making, that God shows mercy to all, including Pharaoh. But watch how this unfolds. So he uses Pharaoh, whom he hardens, to show the power by which he saved all of Israel at the time through the Red Sea. Beyond even that, his power and his name is proclaimed in all the earth as a result of his hardening of Pharaoh. So in other words, there was a purpose of God hardening Pharaoh against God. To assume or even to teach that this hardening of Pharaoh means that God has sealed his eternal damnation, which some people leap to, is to tragically miss the point. So I'm firing an arrow. Let's fire the arrow now. Let's be the far striker. Romans 11:7. Let's go to this idea of hardening. Remember, Paul holds a thought for a long time. I'll be speaking sometimes conversationally, and two sentences after I said something, I forgot what I said two sentences ago. Paul still remembers what he said here in Romans 9:17, in Romans 11:7 and following. Listen to what he says. And this, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I exegeted all of Romans 11 in Better Call Paul. And so I'm going to bring that in, use it with some emendations, a little bit of change. Paul says, what then? Here's another conclusion. What then? What are we going to say then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. That's the elect portion of Israel. Then he says the rest were hardened. Then he goes on to say, just in verse 8, just as it stands written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, even to this day. Verse 9, moreover, David says, let their table become a snare and a net, and a trap, and a means of self-punishment to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and their backs be continuously bent over. What's he talking about? Psalm 69, 22 to 23 here. But Paul then takes that information in verse 11, and he says, So I, Paul, say... They have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? In other words, God temporarily hardens a people or a leader or a person or a set of persons within the context of history, but not for them to be hardened eternally. They will be saved in the eschaton, if not later on in time, in this age, in their own lifetime. That's not the point. He doesn't harden them permanently. So Paul says they... This hardened part of Israel is also the part of Israel that stumbled or tripped. But Paul's answering the question about people who think that means hardened for eternal damnation by saying this. But he says, 
I, Paul, say they haven't tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not. There's another meganoito. Of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation. By their transgression, salvation. There's a purpose in the hardening of a part of Israel. By their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans, the Gentile nations, in order to in turn provoke Israel to jealousy. Verse 12, but if their misstep, that's Israel, the hardened part of Israel, if their misstep, their stumbling, their transgression, is bringing riches to the world, that's the riches of Christ in Ephesians 3.8, and their defeat, riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring them? Paul anticipates a fullness, a pleroma, a full salvation. So he's talking about something that happens in history, something that happens in the course of history. He hardens part of Israel. And it's not permanent. It's temporary. At the same time, he talks about if their hardness yielded salvation for the Gentiles, how much more will their pleroma their full salvation bring to the world. What's going to happen then in the eschaton? What will overflow from a fully saved Israel? Which Paul obviously anticipates here. So he goes on to say, and I told you we we're going to read big chunks of scripture tonight. Then he says this, but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Remember, curb your enthusiasm. You Gentiles who think God has forsaken Israel. I'm talking to you now. You Gentile Christians who have a bias that favors yourselves and a prejudice against your Jewish Christian brethren or against the Jewish people. I'm speaking to you now. I'm speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles I am now magnifying my ministry. In other words, I'm expanding its effect. The effect of Paul's ministry on the Gentiles will overflow to the saving of some Jews. Look what he says. In view of the fact that I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm magnifying or expanding the effect of my ministry. Verse 14. If by doing so, I may provoke my flesh. Here he's using a very clever turn of words here to provoke my flesh may be for us would be to step into a situation where we know our sin nature is going to be stimulated so don't do it well I know if I go into that place I'm going to stir up my flesh well then I got some advice for you don't go into the place wow that's profound wisdom so Today I was watching a little bit of what was going on in Capitol Hill, and my flesh was often stirred up to anger. And so I said, I will go away from watching these antics and go and read the Bible. No. It was kind of like that. But, but what Paul's saying, I'm going to, what has he said? Stir up my flesh, provoke my flesh. But here he's talking about Israel after the flesh his fellow Israelites, his brothers, his countrymen by physical descent. 
provoke them to jealousy. And here it is again. And save some. Paul, you can't save your people. No. What do you, you know what he's saying? He's saying that if my people, Israel, get all charged up about what God's giving the Gentiles, that might provoke them to think about it and also evoke faith in them. In other words, I want, I know all of Israel is going to be saved in the eschaton, but if I work this right, some of them will be saved right during this evil age before the eschaton, right in time. So if by doing so I may provoke my flesh, that's fellow Israelites. We already looked at this last night, Romans 9.3, arrow backwards. Paul's brothers, his countrymen by physical descent, even family members. He says to jealousy and save some of them. For you see, here it is again in verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? Which he anticipates. What will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. Can we boldly suggest that Pharaoh's hardness will not always be permanent either? And that this Pharaoh who withstood Yahweh will one day bow his knee and acknowledge that Yeshua is Yahweh to the glory of God? We better conclude that because that's what the Bible says. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Romans 14, 11, Isaiah 45, 22, and 23. So if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Now this, of course, is tied to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Real Israel, Jesus Christ, was rejected on the cross. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Paul takes that and moves it over to if the rejection... Of Israel, the rejection of their Messiah ended up being salvation or reconciliation to the Gentiles, then what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Meaning, all of Israel will be saved at the resurrection. Let's shoot the arrow further. We've just gone from 11 7 to 15. Let's shoot the arrow, another one. Let's let it fly like Jonathan did in signaling. David, let's let the arrow fly to 1125. Paul says, my siblings, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you'd not be sensible only in yourselves. Meaning, I don't want your wisdom to be restricted to mere common sense, which is a limiting, acceptable norm in your group. Here's the mystery, that what? Hardness has come about in part of Israel only until, whom I will I'll harden, God says, because it has a saving purpose, a salutary, salutary plan. That hardness has come about in part of Israel only until Please note those two phrases. I've tried to emphasize them in the past. In part, until. In part means partial. Until means temporary. Partial, temporary hardness. Happened in Israel until the totality, pleroma, that means the total. That doesn't mean the total number of Gentiles that are going to be saved. That means the total number of Gentiles 
are saved. Until the total number or the totality of the Gentiles comes in. That means enters the kingdom of God, the Israel of God. And then he says in verse 27, and he quotes, this is my covenant with them, Isaiah 59, 21a, when I take away their sins. As for the gospel, as for the gospel, verse 28, they, who? The hardened part of Israel, which he also called earlier the broken off branches of the olive tree. The, as for the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. I'm talking to you Gentiles now. They're enemies for your sake. But as for the election... They are beloved because of the patriarchs. God still loves them, meaning he loves them with an elective kind of love. Because not just because, oh, we're good because we got the patriarchs. No, because the promise to the patriarchs is that the Christ would come through the line of Isaac. And that, in other words, because of the patriarchs and because Christ came through the patriarchs, Israel is saved. And God is still finds them his beloved. In verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That gifts and calling goes back to 9-4. To whom belongs the patriarchs, the covenants, the adoption as sons, the giving of Torah. And to whom belongs Christ himself, who descended from them according to the flesh and who is God Blessed over all. As you, verse 30, you Gentile Christians, once disobeyed, pagan unbelievers that you were, but now you've received mercy. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I had mercy on pagans who didn't seek me. I was found by a people not even seeking after me. I bumped into them and saved them. They were running as fast as they could away from me. And I stepped in front of them and they bumped into me and I saved them. That's pretty much what he says in Romans 9.30 and in Romans 10.20 and 21. But he says, as you Gentiles once disobeyed, speaking of them as a group, but now have received mercy, so they... Who? The hardened part of Israel, whom Gentile Christians see reflected in their Jewish Christian brethren. And so they're intolerant toward them, prejudiced toward them. So he says, they have, as you, once disobeyed. That means didn't believe, too. Disobeyed. But now have received mercy. So they, verse 31, the hardened part of Israel, also have now disobeyed, disbelieved, or became unfaithful, so that the same mercy given to you, they will also receive. Why? Because you see there's this little qualification for receiving mercy, and it's disobedience and unbelief. And so, for you see, oh, wait a minute, there's 1132 again. God has imprisoned them all in disobedience. That includes Israel. The word here for disobedience is apatheia. 
It looks like this. It's A-P-E-I-T-H-E-I-A. A-P-E-I, accent here, T-H-E-I-A. And apatheia means two things. It means disobedience, but it's also the result of another word called apistia, A-P-I-S-T-I-A. Apistia, which means unbelief. So God has penned them all up in a maximum security prison called the disobedience of unbelief rather than the obedience of faith. They are in the disobedience of unbelief so that he can open the prison doors and let them all go. Have mercy on them all. For you see, God has imprisoned them all in disobedience in order to have mercy on all. Them all here means all of humanity. In fact, the word them isn't in there. I mistook that. God has imprisoned all, meaning all humankind, including Israel, in disobedience. He's consigned all humanity to disobedience and unbelief so that he can have mercy upon all. So this makes me not wonder so much about why Paul says the next thing he says. Oh, the depth of the wealth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his judgments and how incomprehensible his ways of acting. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever become his advisor? Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things, meaning all of the beings of the entire universe of being in all of its times. All goes to him. To him be the glory for all the ages. Amen. All of this returns us to the salvific reality that all Israel is saved within the context, or we could say within the horizon of the salvation of all of humanity. But even then, there's a bigger concentric circle. I'm just thinking in terms of images now, so I'll do the circle thing, which is one of the basic ways of doing it. The all, all of Israel is saved, Romans 11:26. All Israel. Saved. But that's in a context of God showing mercy to all of humanity, which isn't only in, here comes the pincer strategy, all mankind. All of Israel is saved within the context of the salvation of all mankind. And that's where we go to Romans 5. So we're going to read another big chunk of Romans. Romans five sixteen to 21, let's make it. And then there's a bigger circle than that. Because all of Israel is saved in the context of all mankind being saved, which is in also a bigger context in Romans 8, 19 to 23, which is the redemption of all creation, the emancipation of all creation, so that God's redemptive action in Christ is creation-wide, so when you go back to Genesis 1-1, you better realize that God isn't just talking about some original creation, but he's talking about his eschatological creation. In Christ, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning his redemption 
is creation-wide and history-wide. And your individual salvation is, is within the context of the salvation of all creation and the salvation of all humankind. And Israel's salvation is within the context of the salvation of all mankind, Romans 11.32, the, the mercy given to all mankind. And so ultimately all of mankind becomes the Israel of God, as we will see. So all this returns us to the salvific reality that all of Israel is saved within the context and within the horizon. That's our ninth of the theological functional specialties, which I've kicked in for Romans. The horizon of the salvation or the rectification of all humanity and within the creation-wide and history-encompassing emancipation of all creation. That belongs in a theology book, so I'll say it again. All this returns to the salvific reality that all of Israel is saved within the context and within the horizon of the rectification of all of humanity and that within a creation-wide history-encompassing emancipation of all creation. So we're going to use the pincer as we press toward the dead center, the dead and living center, the breathtaking, breath-giving center of Romans. God is for us, and he is for us all. He has not spared his son, but freely gave him up for us all. That's the center to which we are pressing. So we go from Romans 11 back to Romans 5. Put the squeeze on from 5 and from 11 to 10 and 6 and 7. Surprise, surprise, we've already done chapters 6 and 7 with sneaky forays into the center. So I don't have to do that again. I'm not going to do it again, not this time. So that's why I say we're going to wrap up Romans quicker than you think. How about Romans as an example of what I just said? To show the horizon of the rectification of all humanity in Christ, we have to look at Romans 5. I've already translated it and expanded it. Romans 5.16, the gift. We've spoken about that gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, an incomprehensible death that was endured by God in his philanthropic love for mankind the gift is all out of proportion to the one man's sin in other words the gift called eternal life is all it's so much more greater as to be incomparable with the death that came through one man's sin the gift is far out of proportion to that so he says the gift which is dorema that emphasizes god's free action of giving is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. On the one hand, one sin brought judgment, resulting in the sentence of condemnation, kata krima. But on the other hand, the gift, to charisma, another word for gift, which emphasizes the superior power of grace over sin. On the other, other hand, the gift coming after many trespasses, brought the sentence of justification, which is here the opposite of condemnation. And so, verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, 
how much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? So then, and this is the kicker right here, this verse right here is the kicker. So then, as through one sin came, condemnation to all people, or through one, that man's one man's sin, Adam, came condemnation to all people, so through the righteous act of one, Jesus Christ's faithfulness to death is what he's talking about, came the rectification of life to all people. So Israel's salvation is within the context of the rectification of all people. All the seed of Abraham, Israel, is saved within the context of all the seed of Adam. Christ embodied all of Adam. And so, verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, meaning Jesus Christ, the many were constituted as righteous. Please notice that there is a parallelism here that Paul intends, that 518, justification of life to all people, is what he means when he says many are constituted as righteous. In other words, many constituted as righteousness, as righteous, means all humanity are given justification life or life-giving justification. Verse 20, moreover, the law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass would increase. History is the record of man's increasing trespasses and the increasing sinfulness of man which was all the more exacerbated by the giving of the law because sin was in the world when the law was given and sin was waiting to hijack the law when it came. So the law slipped in as a side issue, so the trespass would increase, but where sin increased or superabounded, grace abounded even much more. To the end, that just as sin reigned in death, so grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life. The life of the coming age through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, let's give an example of the still larger horizon, and we'll close. Israel, all Israel is saved within the context of the rectification of all humankind. And all humankind is saved within the fabric of a creation-wide redemption. And so the redemption wrought by God in Christ is as wide and high and deep and has the same breadth as creation itself. So Romans 8. For the still larger horizon of the emancipation of all creation. Romans 8. Verse 19, for the creation itself, Paul is talking about the entirety of the universal material creation, eagerly waits the apocalypse of the sons of God. That's the inbreaking revelation of eschatological Israel, glorified humanity, as we've learned this past Sunday, the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility. That means God can harden whom he will for as long as he wishes to accomplish an eternally saving plan and then take those whom he hardened and save them. You got a problem with that? I don't really have a problem with that. I'm sorry. I, I have no objections, Your Honor. And so, verse 20, just as God hardens some for a time to instigate his saving purpose so that he can turn around and save the hardened later, he can also create creation and make it subject to futility, meaning that creation itself knows that it can't find fulfillment in itself. Just like man, Augustine was right about one thing. We all have a restlessness in us until we find our rest in him. There's a futility. People try to fill it up with a thousand different things, a million different things. The creation was subjected to futility, which means Genesis 1-2, made without form and void in itself. God did that on purpose. Of itself and of myself, I cannot will my own salvation. I cannot will my election any more than I could have willed my birth. The creation was subjected to futility or made void and without form in itself only to be given purpose and shape by its creator's indwelling or residence. And that's what's going to happen in the restoration of all things. So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The will wasn't involved in it. The, the creation didn't say, hey, make me subject to vanity, will you? It wasn't willingly, but through the one who subjected it. God subjected it with what? with the expectation that the creation itself in verse 21 would be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The children of God, Israel and all mankind, don't find their fulfillment ultimately outside of the fabric of all creation being also liberated by the act of God in Christ. And so again, 21 that the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to corruption. That's the corruption that sin brought into the universe, into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that all the creation, pasa he ketesis, sounds just like Revelation 5.13, pan ketisma, all of creation. We know that all the creation laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs until now. That means that all creation in all of its times, including now, including this time we call the year 2018. But not only is that so, he says, on top of that, we, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, which is the proleptic new creation, the church, the present Israel of God, Christ corporate, however you want to call it, we, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, sigh deeply in ourselves 
we too sigh deeply in ourselves. And this explains the sufferings of this present time and our suffering with Christ, which must precede and be the very means of our entry into glory. That's why we glory in tribulation. But let's finish this off, 23. But not only is that so, on top of that, we, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, sigh deeply in ourselves, awaiting eagerly the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship, that is, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is teaching, and he is very carefully enucleating a doctrine of universal salvation with Israel saved in the context of all humanity being saved, in the context of all creation being saved, to appeal to the Christians in Rome that are at each other's throats, you are all the objects of the mercy of God who has willed that mercy for you. The same abundant mercy is for you. The same great love is for you. You are all in Christ Jesus. What the hell are you fighting about? Be at peace with one another. Jesus said it in, in Mark 9.50. He basically summed up the whole message of Romans. Have salt in yourselves, which is this doctrinal truth, and be at peace with one another. The doctrine of this universal redemption, this universal saving significance of Jesus Christ is a great promoter and engenderer of peace and of expectation. And we still expect, I don't know about you, I'm still expecting the full privilege of my sonship, which will only be mine at the redemption of my body. Still expecting that. Thank you, Father, for demonstrating to us a message in Romans that glorifies your Son and that elevates all of us to an understanding of your mercy and grace. It causes us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand in order to be lifted up with elevating grace. And we thank you for this privilege. Father, may we be characterized by gratitude and by humility, but more than ever, may we be characterized by the love of God that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 